and welcome to another episode of King of the Ride podcast. I'm your host, I'm Ted King, and you're in store for an awesome episode of KOTR today. It's a summer episode, it's a July episode, in some very slight ways, it's a tour episode. It's an excellent episode, and that is thanks largely to our guest today, my friend, Mr. Ian Boswell. Ian Boswell, Oregonian born and raised, now proudly living here in Vermont. He and his then-girlfriend, now wife Gretchen, they moved to Vermont, I think about a year, year and a half before Laura and I made the move. Rural Vermont, and I do mean rural, way up country where they live, that is not the traditional home base for a pro cyclist. But as much as Ian has had a prolific young career already, jumping from the best domestic junior team to the best domestic U23 team, and then onto the pro team, and then onto the international scene with Team Sky, and now with the mighty Katusha program, Ian is not your traditional professional bike racer. You see, there are, there are some unwritten rules for being a professional cyclist. There exists these supposedly understood lists of do's and especially don'ts. Don't don't go camping mid-season. Don't live here in Vermont. Don't eat ice cream. Don't go fishing on your rest day because it's understood that you're supposed to be laying in bed exerting yourself as little as possible on those rest days. Ian has a funny story of his first encounter with me, which thankfully I don't remember in exactly the same way he does, but it's still it still shows the thoughtfulness of this guy. Over the course of getting to know more about Ian, uh, since he's moved to town, becoming friends with him and his wife Gretchen. I wish I had the perspective Ian does during my career, during my time racing. You'll pick up on what I mean in this conversation. Ian's ethos, his perspective, as it pertains to cycling and then much bigger picture in life, they are really, really down to earth. They're impressive. They're, they're downright enviable. It's really cool. The perspective he has on his stewardship for the land, just as he has a perspective of being a steward for cycling. This conversation came to be outside of Village Sports Shop, the foreground of some of the finest mountain biking this country has to offer up in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. Ian dropped in on the fourth running of Tour X New England. That's the eponymous ride my friend Bruce and I started four years ago with the thinking that there are incredible and iconic places to ride your bike all over the world. But there's also incredible adventure right outside our back door. What started as a conversation between Bruce and I linking some of the coolest, most scenic parts of New England together has turned into this 500-ish mile ride each of the past four Fourth of July weeks. Jumping in swimming holes to escape the midsummer humidity, Noshing on some maple creamies, sipping IPAs as recovery bevies. We invite friends to join in for a day or three. Hence, Ian's addition to this ride and Ansel's question from the audience in today's pod. This very intro comes from a park in Richmond, Vermont. My hometown and home of Rooted, Vermont, which is now less than three weeks away. Crazy how soon it is. And in the same light, a big shout-out goes to Ian and Gretchen's ride, the Peachum Fall Fondo. 2019 marks their second edition of that ride, taking place up here in their hometown of Peachum, Vermont. Check that one out, peachumfallfondo.com. Rest assured, 
Then when you look up the photos from last year's event, it was much later in the year and therefore a tad chillier weather. September 21st is the date this year, which looks like is going to be a stunner. Laura and I will definitely be there. Lots of New England friends will be making the trip. Please check that one out. Final shout out, folks. If you enjoy this conversation, this King of the Ride podcast, those reviews make a huge, huge difference in getting the word out about this podcast. Five-star reviews are, of course, preferred. Hit subscribe. Tell your friends to check it out. Ladies and gentlemen, that is all for me. Let's enjoy this conversation with Ian Boswell. According to some serious hard-hitting research I've done, you have a self-proclaimed most creamy consumption in one sitting. Tell me about it. Oh, the most cream. I mean, there's been a lot of most, there's been a lot of multiple creamies eaten in one sitting. Yes. I think the most gluttonous was last year, actually just down the road in, uh, in Lindenville. I came up with Marshall. We went to Tiki bar, had some beers and then we went to get a, he hadn't, he'd never had a maple creamy. So we went to, uh, what's it's the pizza hoagies pizza uh-huh. and they had creamies and it was in October, which a lot of places stopped creamy in, I don't know, August, September. No one wants ice cream in end of October. So we went there and I got an extra, extra large. I always ask for extra, extra large, even though large is like their size. I say, I try to like, it's usually like a young, friendly gal behind the counter. I try to persuade them into like a challenge, like, come on, build it, like make it higher, make it higher. So I got an extra, extra large. And then, uh, yeah, Marshall got a large and then I finished mine, half of his. And then I went back and they had like a it's a pizzeria, so they have like big, you know, cans of Pepsi. Um, and I was like, can you just fill that up with maple creamy? And they did, and I ate it all. And You filled a, say that again, a can of Pepsi? <laughs> no, a like a two liter like bottle? No, not a bottle. Like, you know, like they have those tall, like a paper cup, like a plastic. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, a yeah, yeah. Style, like, like the movies. Or... Yes, yes. Okay. But a, a, a big one. And, wow. uh, yeah. And I love, I mean, pretty much every, well, not unfortunately, it's my, to my benefit. Um, yeah, there's oftentimes we get, I go for always a double ice cream. So we went the other night, we were down in fairly at the drive-in movie theater and uh-huh. we got an ice cream and I wasn't really satisfied. Uh-huh. I normally get like an ice, like ice cream. And we got like a, I got, Gretchen's like, oh, why don't you get like a brownie sundae? Yeah. And I was like, okay. So I got it okay. and it was good, but it was too much brownie, not enough ice cream. Interesting. So I went back and got a maple creamy with, they had to maple supplement candy. the rest of the brownie. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I felt sick for about. There's very seldom I feel sick off too much sugar, but that was adding the maple candy to it. It's like, it's so sweet. It's like you can just feel it like yeah. eating your teeth away. It's just wild because New England, I think New England especially has great, um, you know, homemade ice cream and, and, and the homemade creamy machines where if you order a small, it's the size of your head. And if you order yeah. a medium, it's it's the size of your torso. So double extra large, I imagine, is um, yeah. no shortage of calcium. No, and it's also it's it's a it's amazingly cheap, which is like what yes. blows me away. It's like, and I, I've so far this summer every time I've gotten an ice cream, Gretchen and I have done a picture together with our ice cream. So at some point we could post a collage <laughs> of all the ice cream we've eaten. Actually, the biggest creamy I've eaten. There's a place in Montpelier on Route Two. Okay, uh, it's called Dairy Cream. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's called Dairy Creamy. I guess you could probably ride there from your house. 
Yeah, and it's about mm, hour, hour and change. Yeah, they had a picture of their extra large creamy, and I was like, oh, wow, that looks huge. I should get that. And the picture was actually as large as the creamy. And it, like uh, like the, the size of the drawing was as big as what they had delivered. And I was like really impressed with just the sheer size. And it was like, I mean, it's not, it's three fifty or four fifty or maybe it was like $4.50. But that's like a lot of, you know, yeah. it's a lot of syrup and, you know, dairy that goes into that. I'm, that's lunch. I'm, I'm loving this conversation already. Um, I mean, often the life of a professional cyclist is one of um, abstemiousness. And, and saying, my goodness, that ice cream looks good. I'll have a seltzer water or extra extra tomato on that salad. You got to appreciate the place you're in. You got to enjoy yeah. your surroundings. No different than our surroundings right now. We're at Village... What was it? You were the one who corrected me earlier. Village this Sports Shop? This is Village shop? Sports Shop Trailside uh-huh. on Darling Hill in East Burke. Well said for someone who yeah. was just riding these trails for the first time. Is that correct? First time riding the single track up here, yeah. Okay, okay, excellent. Uh, to our intrepid listener, you should make your way up here and go for uh, an amazing ride with the good folks at Kingdom Experiences, and you can hit up some of the best single track or mixed terrain adventure ride that you're going to have anywhere in the, dare I say, anywhere in the world, but it just happens to be in our backyards. In July, it's the best place in the world. Well, yeah. yeah. It gets a little snowy at other times of the yeah. year. Um, so you're spending the summer here in Vermont. You are a relatively recent transplant to Vermont. How long have you been at Vermont Denizen? Gretchen, my now wife, and I moved here in May of 2017. So mm-hmm. we'd been looking at a place in Vermont, uh, I guess the year and a half prior and we almost moved to Stratford in kind of central Vermont off 89. Mm-hmm. Um, we made an offer and it was like, I went back to Europe and like last minute, I was like, actually it just doesn't feel right. Yeah. Um, and it was a cool, I mean, it was an old house, um, but it needed a lot of work. And I was like, oh, we can, you know, I mean, there was like chimneys going sideways. through. The, it was a house that had been in a family for, you know, since it was built, you know, yeah. 150 years ago. And there was like, nothing was code. You know, it was like very... Yeah, very uh, rinkety. Um, and you're like, I've been to a hardware store. Yeah. I yeah. can fix that. I can, yeah, I can fix that. But it's like, I'm not, it was like, you know, literally chimneys going like sideways to the house. And it was, <laughs> yeah, nothing was, and the, the lady who walked us through, you know, when you have a realtor, they're supposed to, the homeowner's not supposed to be there. Um, the lady who owned the home was actually there. And we walked into the basement. She came with us. She's like, oh, yeah, it's great. You know, in the, in the winter, the water comes in and, it, you know, it freezes and you can like ice skate in the basement. <laughs> I was like, that's not really a selling point that you want to share with someone who's buying the house. But anyways, despite that, we made an offer on the house. Excellent. Um, and yeah, we, it, we didn't go through with it. And then we, uh, six months later, we bought the house that we're, or we made an offer on the house that we're at now in Peachum. Am I crazy? Did you buy the one you're in now in Peachum, sight unseen? I made an offer on it sight unseen, yeah. Yeah, Gretchen had Bold. come up in... Uh, I guess middle of November mm-hmm. and then I think early December we made an offer and then I came up uh, when I was out here at Christmas time mm-hmm. between team camps and we'd already made an offer on at that point but so that's winter 2017 20 where are we now in 16 yeah. oh wow yeah okay yeah and then and I guess so I guess we'd made an offer then but there was our leech field did not exist when we did the inspection so the leech field was draining into the brook so mm-hmm. we had to put in a leech field 
Um, so sale of the house was delayed okay. until after tour of California and yeah, end of May, 20, 2017. And we're, you and I are an interesting, um, similar yet opposing, um, orders of operations. So I'm from New Hampshire, which is Vermont's twins, twin in many ways. Um, so winter of 2016, I just recently moved to California where I found the love of my life, Laura, and you, meanwhile, have just moved or or decided to move to Vermont. Um, Gretchen is a Vermonter by by birth. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. And so, how early was she trying to convince you to come east? Because the moment I I met Laura, I was telling her that we should move east. Um. So I actually met Gretchen in Bend, Oregon, where I grew up. Mm-hmm. So she had moved out there, I guess, a year and a half prior to us meeting in 2015. Um, we met in the spring, I guess, yeah, May of 2015. Um, and she was in Bend as a lot of, it seems a lot of New Englanders have moved to Bend because it's like, wow, we can like... It's hip. Yeah, we can do outdoor activities and like nothing's going to rust or mold. There's no ticks. <laughs> nothing's going stale. Like it's it's very convenient. Uh, Not- oh, it's snowing, but great. It's sunny for the, you know, yeah. snowed overnight, but it's sunny all day. Humidity doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, so she was out there and I, we'd come to Vermont the summer of 2016. Um, and yeah, I kind of just fell in love with it and we started to, our relationship, I guess, developed and we got more serious and I've always wanted to own property. And, um, yes, we found, we were looking for kind of one of our, you know, requirements was we wanted at least 10 acres of, of land to, I don't know, do something with, um, dig holes or (laughs) just drive a tractor. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, which is much more, you know, I guess possible here than in Bend where it's like, you know, it's a beautiful place to live and recreation is great, but the, you know, as far as water and growing, you know, vegetables and a greenhouse and apples and stuff, it's not as prevalent as it is here. There's a shortage of water. And is it, uh, prohibitively expensive at this point? I mean, given the, the hipness of Bend, is it, is it crazy? Like, could you feasibly get 10 acres or do you have to be uh, well outside no, the, I mean, no. the I mean, if, city limits I mean, at this for point? the price we, if anyone's listening to this and wants to move to Many New dozens England, of listeners. Um, yeah, no, we, for the price of our house, we could have bought maybe like a rundown, you know, single, you know, or maybe a double bedroom house on the west side of Bend or maybe not even. It's, yeah, yeah prices are... I don't want to say affordable, but they're much more competitive here than they are in Bend. As you probably saw in California, your oh, California dollar goes a lot further out here. Right. So as Laura and I came east, we did um, Rasputitsa in the spring. And then it was soon after that we went up to visit Gretchen at your new homestead. You were off uh, gallivanting about on your bike, racing and, and so forth. Um, and immediately I fell in love with your barn. And I said, Laura, you know, I think it'd be pretty sweet to have a barn ourselves. And maybe we need about 10 acres. Um, at that point, we knew we wanted to buy a place in Vermont. We knew we liked the pace of life, the, the bucolic, wonderful uh, 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 sense of community here. But it wasn't until, that I, until spending some time in and around and in your barn, I said, man, your barn is dope. So at what point did you realize that you wanted a barn? Um, there wasn't really a, we knew we wanted somewhere to keep things Mm -hmm. and Vermonters love things, not nothing of any purpose, just things. Mm -hmm. Um, and barns are really great for storing things. Uh So our barn is definitely probably bigger than 
any barn I had imagined us owning because it's pretty expansive, um, which is wonderful. But so was your priority, say, the 10 acres or – and it Inevitably, if you guys think with 10 acres around here, it's probably going to have a large storage unit. Yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah, at least, yeah, it's kind of 10 acres. And then we, Gretchen especially, was drawn to like an old farmhouse. And yeah, our house was built in 1785. So it's Good gravy. it's about as old as they come. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then the barn, um, it's actually one contiguous structure. So there's like a barn, like then, you know, they built a second L to the house and then a carport and then it's all connected to the barn. Um, and it turned out wonderfully, you know, like we, we got married in the barn, um, just over a month ago. And Freaking so we, stunning. Yeah. So Gretchen, thanks to Gretchen did all that work and her family and friends. I was racing the tour last summer and felt sorry for myself. And then I saw Gretchen like power washing the barn covered in yeah <laughs> whitewash and cow that shit. Paint. And I did not feel bad for myself. <laughs> um, so no, it's, it's awesome. And, you know, it's, I guess we kind of view ourselves as like stewards of the property. You know, it's been here much longer than we have been around and hopefully we can maintain it to pass it on to the next, you know, inhabitants of the, of the property. Have you done a, uh, maybe I'll call it a lineage. I mean, if, do you know the, the lineage of the home? Was it multi-family or all within the same family or? Um, so it was a we know who built the house. It's in the Peachum Historical Society has pretty good documentation of, of the home. And, um, it was founded by Elijah Martin back in yeah, 1785. Um, and then for the majority of, and it was an inn at one point and it was a tavern at one point. Oh, and, cool. um, yeah, so there's been quite a few people who have passed through Peachum who have some sort of connection with the house, whether they had lived there or whether they, you know, were friends with people who lived there. And, um, yeah. So anytime the house is like, I feel the house is dirty. Like there's like, you know, dust on the floor or something, you know, someone will come by and like, Oh yeah, we should like, you know, milk our cows in the living room. And I was like, okay, our house <laughs> at some point was much dirtier than it is now. Um, which is nice to know that you can always clean a house. Yes. Yeah. So we have, you know, there's been, uh, I guess this, it's people in Peachum know it as the old Summers Farm, okay. um, which it used to be connected to 500 acres of, of land and they were milking there until like the 1980s. Um, and then they stopped milking and yeah, when, and they sold it off and now it's, yeah, the property has been split up into different, you know, parcels. Uh-huh. Very cool. Yeah, we... Uh... We have a similar story. Ours is smaller. We also have a, a dairy farm that's connected to our barn. We have not done the lineage game, um, yeah. so we can't say it's the summer's farm. But I like the point that chances are the place is going to continue so long as you don't do something completely stupid. So, yes, the steward. You are, you are being a steward of the land and of the the, the edifice edifices. Um, you have a silo. There was you a silo, uh, yeah. The cool little uh, A-frame, A-frame out back. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and I guess that's one thing that I mean I find very unique about Vermont is you know growing up on the West Coast, there's like expansive, you know, national forest or state forest. There's so much public land. There's like so much wilderness. Um, there's much less public wilderness on the East Coast, but the inhabited areas and properties are kind of like very instrumental to the land mm -hmm. and like the, you know, the geography, but also just the, 
the views and the scenes. Like you see like an old farm. It's like, that's part of, it's very integrated of like people living within the nature, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, as we're in, you know, on the West coast, you tend to see a lot of sprawl of like, you know, humans like pushing nature back. And here it's more like people plotted within, mm-hmm. you know, not the wild, but within, you know, the ecosystem. I dig it. Um, so one year ago, you were uh, racing the Tour de France, and so given various time changes throughout the day, not time changes, but time uh, differences between here and Europe, you had breakfast with Boz, and now we have bike rides and beers with Boz. So, or with Ted. And with Ted, yeah. <laughs> um, so this might feel very, very familiar. You're, you're here back in Vermont for the month of uh, July and June, which has been fortuitous in, a, in certain ways in that you were able to, to spend more time leading up to your, your exciting wedding. And you've been able to do such activities as, I don't want to say lead, given that you're a relatively new denizen of uh, Peachum, but you were certainly part of the tractor parade on the 4th of July. Um, what are the circumstances that have led you to, uh, to be here this summer? Yes, I'll make this a quick synopsis. Um, so I had a bad crash back in Terreno Adriatico in middle of March. Um, yeah, I crashed and suffered a concussion. And at the time it did not seem, I guess I just felt like it was a small setback. Like I'd, you know, take a couple of days off and I would, you know, at the time I mean, you've raced professionally, you know how it is. Like you crash, you're like, oh, this is unfortunate, but okay, cool. Like yeah. I got to take a couple of easy days. Um, and it's been very much a roller coaster of, you know, both physical and emotional, you know, strain over the last, you know, almost coming up on four months. Um, so I stayed in Europe and I, yeah, there's, there were some other medical complications that were discovered with, through MRIs with a, with a syrinx in my neck and, um, yeah, some like prior, um, brain bleeding from prior concussions. Um, and yeah, there were a lot of symptoms that I, just kind of felt like would pass relatively easily. And it's taken much longer than I had anticipated for those to kind of subside. And I'm at a point now, I guess, you know, almost four months on where I'm able to, to ride my bike again. And, you know, today was like the first time I was on single track, which would have been probably something, I mean, definitely something when I first started riding again that I wouldn't have been able to handle just as far as like my spatial awareness and handling. Um, so I'm, yeah, that's why I'm here now. Um, and yeah, my goal, I guess, 2019 was again to you know do well in Tour of California and go back to the Tour de France. So it's been a journey to not be there. Um, I guess I'm trying to make the most of it and doing stuff like this and podcasting and biking and enjoying beer because last year was very different than, than this. I guess I was still podcasting, but mm-hmm. you know it was like kind of in the at the pinnacle of professional cycling. Um, but I guess the commonality being that I'm still riding a bike and I love riding my bike and whether you're racing in France or riding with a group of, of buddies, it's, uh, still enjoyable. Excellent. Um, I mean, for the wrong circumstances, excellent. Uh, I mean, talk to me about your, your training philosophy and whether that has changed as a result of knocking your head here and there and realizing just how sort of fickle it can be. Um, and then if by any chance a migration east to a very, uh, I mean, casual place of living like Vermont where, where the pace of life just is a little bit easier, is that, is that relatable? Is that 
Or I is guess, that just perhaps coincidental? There's been a huge perspective ch- shift through this crash. I guess in the sense that, like, for, I mean, for the last, I guess, 10 years, like, my whole focus and, like, purpose of life is, like, performing on a bicycle. Like, my happiness was dictated entirely by, like, how my training ride went or how I felt or, you know, how I'm meeting these certain benchmarks, whether it's, you know, pressures I put on myself or that the team expects or results. Um, and through this crash, I realized that at some point, at some point, re- the reality is that you're going to, you know, your professional cycling career will end, whether it's, you know, sooner or later. Um, so trying to like round out your life and be a wholesome, you know, individual, which is something I've always tried to, you know, I've always enjoyed my, my time away from the sport. Um, but it's, I guess it's really put an emphasis on like longevity of health and how mm-hmm. we do definitely take for granted our very kind of finite career of, of professional racing. Cause the minute you start to think about not, you know, about crashing, like, well, you're kind of out of the game because, you know, riding, you know, on a, for example, the ride we did today, you know, there were some fast ascents and like some rough roads, but you're very much in control of like, if I choose to slow down on this downhill and like take it at my pace, no one cares. We're going to stop yeah. at the bottom and, you know, there's a, a rest stop. But when you're racing, you have no control over the risk that you're willing to take because it's not set by you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that a lot, I mean, all professional athletes kind of forego is this risk analysis. Like you don't set the level of risk you're willing to take. Um, and I guess it's something I'm more aware of now, but it's something that I really, I guess I ad- it makes me admire more what, you know, I've done for the last, you know, 10 years and what you've done. It's like you, it, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, it is crazy. At, yeah. And I want to talk about that, like dive in deeper for, for the benefit of the listener. When you talk about, it's not up to you in a Peloton, it's because if you're going down a particular descent or road, or there's a corner coming up, whatever it is, and you can't dictate your own speed, it's because there are 179 other people who want to take that corner before you. So you're fighting tooth and nail um, I mean, you know, life and limb to get into that corner at the right time. And that happens in the classics. It happens in the spring classics, the hilly classics, um, in every grand tour, especially at the tour. It's just such a, such a gnarly, dangerous sport all day, every day. Yeah. And I, I mean, you stopped in what, 2016, 2015 was my final 2015. year. 2015. I'm not, I'm sure you even saw over the course of your career, how much more risk people were willing to take and how much more mm-hmm. professional it became. Cause I mean, we were riding together in maybe 2013, 2012, yeah. 20, 2012, 2013. We were spending, both spending time in Santa Rosa and Napa riding. And I remember you telling me about going to liquid gas camp, how it was like detraining almost like you guys would go and yeah, you'd ride six hours, but it'd be very easy. Like, Italian, like, why oh, you got to do, you know, 10,000 K in the small training yeah, yeah. before you start training. <laughs> and that's completely gone out the window since, you know, since then you probably even saw the transition, you know, going to, going to Garmin or to Cannondale. Um, and it just continues to progress on that same sort of level as far as like, it just keep, you know, I, I was in Mallorca this year in December and there were juniors, you know, there on training camp, you know, doing 25 hour weeks. And it's like, that's more than I did when I was, you know, my first year pro and like the level the professionalism just keeps rising. Sure. Um, so the risk keeps rising and the, the level of, you know, professionalism just continues to grow, which just makes it more, 
more dangerous, but also just like it's harder. I mean, I remember. I mean, you you've you have a power meter now, and you probably had one, you know, for a large part of your career. I remember like at some point in my career, I remember Talansky did like 400 watts for 20 minutes. It must have been in 2010. Good God. And like everyone was like, wow, like that's like magic. You know, like 400 was like this golden number. It's like if you can't do 400 watts now for 20 minutes, like you might as well just go home. (laughs) Like it's like, it's not even, it's just, it's the whole, the, yeah, I guess the benchmark has just changed. Uh Uh-huh. Well, so one thing I wanted to talk about was, um, I migrated from Bissell to Cervelo test team and that was my migration to Europe. And, and so I, my last year in the States was 2008 with Bissell. I want to say your first year was with Bissell in 2009. Not your first year. Okay. Oh, and this this is a, a sidetrack, so keep keep your thought. Okay. Um, I was saying the first time I'd ever come across you um, mm-hmm. was at, you, I don't know if you, you'll remember this now, in Nationals in 2012. Okay. No, sorry, 2010. I, it was my first year with Bissell. I just turned, just graduated the juniors, and I signed a contract with Bissell. He was a 14-year-old kid. And we were, <laughs> was it in Greenville? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had just done tour de l'avenir, and you know, Bissell's like, you need to come to the you know pro road nationals because it's important for our team. And I remember I was very intimidated by you because I think the of the pro riders there was like Hincapi, yourself, maybe Levi or something. But I mean, yeah. you you guys were like the big world tour riders, and you were on Cervelo test team at the time. Dang, bro! That's and I remember praise. we went we went through the feed zone, and I was like, okay, like you know, I'm riding next to Ted, and you took your feed bag. And you threw it off to the left, and you were right next to me. And your the strap of the feed bag caught your handlebar. Oh fuck! You don't remember this? No. And you, cra- I mean, you, and you crashed. I mean, at the time, I thought pretty hard. I think your feed bag had caught your handlebar when you threw it. I do remember that. It must now. have been you because it was okay. the only surreal yeah, yeah, yeah. team rider. And I remember like being like walk, going around the peloton to my teammates, like, "Do we stop? Like Ted King just crashed. Like, what do we? What do we do? Like, and he's like one of like the big riders in the race. Like, what are we supposed to do? Yeah. Oh um, man. So that was my first time. I think we, first time we'd raced together, and first time I <laughs> like Ted yeah. just crashed himself out. This yeah. Is, well, did you drop out? Uh, I believe I got back in the race and had a, had a mildly decent race. Yeah. I have ben shredded myself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In a magnificent breakaway. Yeah. Ah, uh, yes. I I rejoined the peloton. Thank you for opening up wounds and forgotten about that. That lived in the back of my mind. Um. So the question that I was trying to segue was. So I, I had learned of you because you had gone to Bissell, um, and I was, you know, I keep my tab on, keep tabs of what's going on back in the States as I'm gallivanting throughout Europe, and then you migrate from there to Livestrong, soon to Sky, and the, and the segue being, you know, as the sport gets more and more professional, you're looking after every marginal gain you can, and that's sort of the joke of Sky, it's like, this is the team of marginal gains. Um, the migration I hear from riders who've gone from Livestrong or whatever iteration they want to call it to a team like, or any team in the world tour is it loses its fun factor. Um, how, how do they allow you to cope? How do they allow you to, to go from like this really fun group of kids who are 18 to 21 years old to, Hey, this is the big leagues and, and this stuff counts and don't mess up. And yeah, well, I guess, so I went from hot tubes, um, which was extremely fun team to race with. And a lot of those guys are still some of my better friends in the Peloton. So Lawson Craddock, Nate Brown, um, Anders Newbury's not racing, but he's a Vermonter. Um, and 
Yeah, so then I went to Bissell because there was a Cervelo test team development team that was supposed to be started by Hushoft and Cervelo, and it never happened. So that's how I ended up on Bissell and then went to to Livestrong where, you know, I was kind of reconnected with Lawson and Gavin. Um, he was also on Hot Tubes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, so then I went, wound up at Sky after, I guess it was my third year under 23. Um, and to be honest, it was a really... It was a much more inf- it was a much more fun environment than I think people from the outside appear it I mean view it as a team you know because it is very robotic as far as their approach to racing um, but being in a British team with like you know a lot of really cool you know guys like Garen Thomas and you know Luke Rowe Pete Kenna Swifty they're actually really cool fun guys so real quick what was your first year on Sky 2013 I think we did Paranese together oh heinous race yeah I remember I had dropped out on stage eight or something the, the day we rode in because Richie won it. Yep, yep. Um, so Danny Payton and I rode the front and then we both pulled out over a climb because the next day was the time trial up um, Coldez. Yep. I think I spoke to you in the hotel. You probably don't remember this, but it was influential to me. Um, you, were at, you were at Liquid Gas and I spoke to you in the hotel and you're like, oh yeah, this, you know, this, this race sucks, but like, at least we have good pasta. <laughs> like, I think your team like only <laughs> fed you pasta. Like maybe you had a chef that like just cooked pasta. That's, that's accurate. Um, well, I mean, Perry Nice is like the first ridiculously hard race of the year. Um, yeah. It's like the weather's going to suck. You sort of question how anybody got so fit, you know, because you're racing two weeks prior and everybody's sort of eh, gallivanting around in, in, in February. And all of a sudden, boom, game yeah, it's on. on. Yeah. It's like, thanks, Valverde. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jerk. Yeah. There's always someone who's going good from, well, that year it was Richie that, yeah. that I think he won the race. Um, so I guess, I mean, from a young age at Sky, I was like exposed to a lot of success and maybe more success than I really realized was normal. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, my first world tour race was Paranese and we won. Yeah. And it was like, there was no party. It was just like, great. Like, yeah. let's get ready for, you know, the Ardennes now. And I was like, system. Yeah. All things normal. Like, yeah. Check. Yeah. Knock, knock that one off. Um, so it was really fun to be at Sky and I was there for five years, which is a long time on, on a team of, of that status. Um, four years there? Five. Wow. So my first contract was three years long. Yeah. And there was definitely a time probably after, I mean, within the first year when I had considered writing Brailsford and just saying like, I don't deserve this contract. Cause I was just getting, you know, beat up week in and week out. And you know, I guess the transition to Europe was harder than I thought it would be. Yeah. And I'd spoken a bit of French, um, and both Dombrowski and I had moved to Nice because at the time Bobby Julik was supposed to be our coach and mentor. And then at the team camp in, I guess, the fall or winter of 2011, mm-hmm. um, or sorry, 2012, before 13, our first season with the team, Julik was let go of the team because of his implication in the, the Armstrong investigation. Um, so all of a sudden I was like, well, we'd already chosen to live in Nice, like, as Bobby to be our mentor, but now Bobby's not part of the team anymore. And this was kind of before Nice was like a hub, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of, I don't know where you were, you might've been in Girona or yep. Luca. Yeah. Um, that's kind of where all the American, you know, English speaking writers were. So we moved to Nice kind of on our own and Richie was there and Frumi were, you know, Richie and Frumi were both in Monaco, but they were like way too cool to, to train with us, um, at the time. And since, you know, we've I've become closer friends with them, but at the time we were like the young punk Americans. So you're saying you guys are trendsetters, making Nice cool? Um, I mean, it's well, gone from basically it was, nothing to something pretty big. Well, it's it's kind of gone like full circle in the sense that 
when you and I were riding together a lot in the winter of 2012, I rode a lot with Levi in Santa Rosa. And they he loved living in Nice. You know, he lived there and Lance was there, Julek was there, Vandeveld, Hincapi. Um, and they all moved to, to Spain for yeah. different reasons. Um, he loved living in Nice. So we were like, well, cool, we'll move to Nice. Um, and it's still one of the best places for road for to be a professional road cyclist because the training is incredible. You know, you're close to the airport, you know, and now there's probably sixty or seventy pro road riders who live in I mean, I don't say Nice, a lot of them are the better riders who live in Monaco and mm-hmm. yeah, forego paying taxes, but yeah. Choice. I, we yeah, we can't do that as Americans. No, uh that is a strange thing about being an American. Like no matter how long you've been gone, no matter how much you are an expat, you owe American taxes. Well, it's something that I've known. I mean, you probably noticed it's like one thing that cyclists always talk about is taxes. Uh-huh. It's like I don't like for ninety percent of the riders, we're not making that much money. Our career is relatively short, uh-huh. and taxes aren't that outrageous. It's yeah. like why? Why is it such a discussion that people are like discussing what they're doing with their financial, you know, tax I, in their own country? Yeah, I think about that especially with a guy like like Sagan living in what Monaco. Yeah, he's in Monaco. Yeah. Uh, Froome. I mean, these guys are on multi, multi, multi-million euro contracts. That's still pretty pedestrian by those standards. It's like these yeah. guys don't own yachts. Yeah. That yeah. Cost. The comparison to other people in Monaco. Yeah. yeah. You know, you drive your Fiat and yeah. and. Yeah. Well, I'm just, I'm just still. I mean, I'm just unaware of what. I mean, we're getting very off topic of cycling here, but how <laughs> does like not paying taxes for ten years and then bringing X number amount of you know, dollars or euros back to your home country. Like, do countries allow that? Like, if I just walked into the U.S. and put, you know, if I was Froome and or Sagana put, you know, $10 million into a bank account, like, you have to have some sort of documentation of where this money came from, yeah. I would assume. But, yeah. yeah, it's, <laughs> I don't, I don't deal with it. I, I pay my state and federal tax, so I don't have to worry about it. What's the, what's the uh, Biggie Smalls, or is that more money, more problems? <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, ain't that the truth? Um, well, yeah, we got good things going on here. We got good pace of life, good view, good beer, good friends, good community, good all things good. Um, my questions are are running out. We have we have an audience here. Are there any questions coming in from the audience? Um, here here, I'm gonna pass the mic to Ansel Dickey, uh, chief videographer for Grode. And for our wedding, and for Peach and Fall Fondo. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, Ian Boswell is currently wearing a Wealthy Oysters t-shirt. Uh, what is your connection to Cape Cod? And I'm particularly interested because I grew up on Cape Cod. Somebody asked me this the other day, and they're like, oh, do you like those oysters? And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, I bought the, Gretchen bought this for me at a thrift shop. <laughs> yep, so <laughs> never, ha- never had one, um, but it's a good weight. Good weighted shirt. It's got good good thickness to it, and it's yeah, interesting. Can you tell me about these oysters? Should uh, I go try them? Well, because actually, we had there was oysters at um, the King Challenge last year. Yeah, and I love oysters. Gretchen doesn't like them, but select oysters. Yeah, raw only. Yes. Um, Wellfleet has a very famous oyster fest, and if you don't know, Wellfleet is a town, very small town, far far out on Cape Cod little peninsula and 
the Oyster Fest is famous. It's the equivalent to Nemba Fest in Vermont, but for oysters and people just drink beer and eat oysters because apparently Wellfleet oysters are the best in the world. Um, but I grew up on, in Truro, which is a town right next to Wellfleet, so I was interested. Uh, my next question. Well, I, I, one more question before we get off oysters. So when someone, yeah. when I wear the shirt next and someone asks me, what is my response? What flavors am I supposed to like? You know, like, I don't know how, I don't know much about oysters, but <laughs> am I supposed to say there's like a citrusy? No, no, no. Just tell them that you won the shucking competition in Wellfleet at the Oyster Fest. And that's how I got the t-shirt. Yep. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> so used to, like, oysters are incredibly hard to shuck with this special knife. And yeah. they have a timed competition at the fest festival. So just tell them that you won. It's like a watermelon eating contest. Mm-hmm. Or hot dog eating contest. We should do a cream. Well, that's, then you have to, then you have like the factor of brain freeze. Uh, I have one more question. If you were to give advice to junior cyclists striving to be pro and like in the fast track through the national team and whatnot, um, what would it be as far as training, as far as networking with teams, as far as nutrition, um, from your own experience making it, how would you, how would you give back and how would you advise those juniors who really want to make it? My advice would be a lot of patience. Um, so I'm coaching several juniors now or some riders who are just just have turned under 23. And I think it's really easy to get carried away at a young age. Um, so, you know, Gavin Mannion, who oh, was yeah. a kid who yep. we raced together when we were 14 at Nationals out in Utah. And he was like, he wasn't immature. Just physically, he was small. And like, I think I lapped him twice in the criteria of nationals and he's, he's just like kept steadily chipping away at cycling. And now he's, you know, one of the U S's best, you know, racers. He won tour Colorado last year. And I think he's, you know, been maybe top 15 in tour California. Um, so I think being patient and not, you know, like I said, it's to Ted earlier, there's an era of extreme professionalism. And so all of a sudden young riders can now view what professionals are doing as far as like training and you know hours on the bike and watts per kilo so they all of a sudden assume that they should be doing something similar not realizing that you know it's better to always have room to improve than it is to be kind of pushing the limits and then having to take a step back or or burn out right um and then on top of that i would just say surrounding yourself with a good network of people you know both you know coaching and directing and I think having a good network is really important and people you trust and whether that advice advice is sound is almost irrelevant. As long as you're surrounding yourself with people you actually believe in and trust, I think is the most important to have like a network of people who are there to support you and to, to guide you kind of through this very transitional phase of, cause the steps become bigger from, you know, junior to under 23. Now it's a big step cause there's under 23 riders racing in world tour races like tour of California. Yep. Um, and I think just being really being patient and kind of just slowly chipping away at, you know, at your both, you know, and just always trying to always learn. And that's one thing I, of the kids I coach, I just say like, learn something always, like just continue to learn. If you make a mistake and you lose a race, like, you learn much more in losing a race than you do in winning a race. So just continuing to like keep a journal and just continuing to not just don't make the same mistake twice. Right. Makes sense. Uh, your response intrigues me as to who was your network growing up when you were a junior and you were on the cusp of making it. 
Yeah, so I was pretty fortunate of growing up in Bend, Oregon, where there was a lot of kind of endurance athlete, you know, either professionals or athletes who had been professional. Um, so Bart Bowen, who was, I think, U.S. national champion multiple times and definitely in cyclocross, um, he actually moved behind my mother's house. So in exchange for coaching, I oh. babysat his kids. Um, so he was my coach up until I was... I think out of juniors, uh, maybe even my first year with Bissell. Um, and so just like, I mean, I was extremely lucky to have a connection like that, but I think, you know, in Ben, we also had a really good masters scene of, you know, there's a ton of masters racers. So just having access to those, you know, kind of more experienced racers to just like, you know, to ride with and to network with and to race with, um, was extremely beneficial just to, to kind of pick their brain and also just to, you know, have people to kind of, you know, who are stronger than you to, to learn from. Cause you know, like I said, you learn a lot more when you get dropped than you do when you're yeah. dropping people. Really? As I learned today, on <laughs> I climbed to the radar base and still took Eastbrook. the straw, still took the straw of KOL. <laughs> uh, who else has questions from the audience? Mike back in my hand. Um, you have come to the King challenge we have ridden the farm to fork fondo uh, on at least one occasion. Um, you and your wife have recently started the Peachum Fall Fondo. Uh, at what point did creating an event uh, ping on your radar? I mean, was it something you've been wanting to do for a while? Was it something to to occupy time? Um, how did how did creating an event, which Laura and I are understanding, is not an easy endeavor? Uh, but certainly one that, that we were excited about for a long time. How did that end up on your radar? Well, Laura would know that it's definitely not easy, and thinking of it is much easier than actually making it happen. Um, so I guess last, so in 2018 in the spring, I kind of came up with this idea, like, I want to put on this ride. Because there's a lot of people in Peachum who didn't really grasp what I did as a profession. Um you know, we would be around town and people would say, oh, you're that, you're that runner guy. I'm like, no, nah, I'm a cyclist, <laughs> but yeah, okay. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, I'd, yeah, you're an athlete. Okay. Um, and Do you know Usain Bolt? <laughs> yeah. So Peachum is a very, I think the, the most recent census is like, you know, 650, 700 people. Um, and it's a very tight-knit community in the sense that as it is in Vermont, that people are very involved in that community. And most people are involved, and especially younger couples are kind of expected to be involved. And I wasn't involved because I wasn't there. I was, you know, I was gone for 10 months straight last year trying to pursue this goal of doing the tour, then I went straight into doing the Vuelta, so I was away. So I was like, well, what can I contribute to the community that's actually something I can do? Because I can't sit on the board of, you know, Gretchen's on... I know, three different committee, and she's always got an energy committee meeting, a business meeting, this child center. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, it's, to this day, no one's asked me to be on a committee, which is like, I kind of feel like a little bit embarrassed about that no one's asked me, but I'm also like fortunate I don't have to go to, to all these meetings. You just know your schedule. Um, yeah. So I, I figured like, what can, how can I kind of uniquely contribute to, to the community? And that was, that was the bike ride. Um, and so I kind of thought up the idea and I started to put it together with some, some partners and some, um, you know, brands that I'm really familiar with and know well, like Wahoo's our, our title sponsor and they've, you know, I've known them since my time at Sky and they jumped right on it and that kind of made it happen. Um, probably too quickly in the sense that like all these kind of pieces fell into place before the foundation was there. 
and I was away, so I wasn't there. I wasn't in, you know, in Vermont to be able to go to the select board meetings and be like, hey guys, like we're gonna, you know, take over, you know, essentially the the green for a day and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, so Gretchen has slowly been kind of shuffled into being the the head of the event. Um, so still a lot of my ideas are. Yeah, Ted's pointing at Laura. He he knows what it's like. It's it's easy to come up with the idea. It's very difficult to run an event. Um, and there's just a lot more that goes into it than you think. So that's kind of the, the backstory of it. Um, yeah, I wrote a story last year for for cycling tips, and Ansel did the photography for it. It was yeah, it was uh, yeah. We had to set up this darn event tent that took us so long to set up and i guess answer with we had so we i was stressing out and we had this pre-ride ride the night before we was kind of with like the partners and the the sponsors of the event um and yeah we all went down there at i don't know 8 30 at night or something in the back of my truck and we set up the tent with helping having helping hands makes a big difference and that's like kind of the big old not quite circus tent but yeah it was like a 20 by 20 circus tent yeah. Yeah, because Marshall and I tried to set it up ourselves. It's like you pull one string and then another side falls, and we yeah we'd set it up inside out. And um, at at that point, I'd almost given up on the whole idea of the fondo. I was like, you know, we have 170 people coming tomorrow. Like, we cannot do this. Like, yeah. I don't even know what I'm doing. And we I was just, I was tent. I was fixated on this tent. Okay. And the idea of the whole event was much bigger than the tent. And the tent was nice to have like protection from the rain but it's essentially irrelevant to the whole you know the bigger picture of the ride um and maybe that's the cyclist to me is like you fix you like fixate on this almost insignificant point of something um but anyways yeah ansel came down and we got the tent set up with i don't know 10 of us and the event went off and probably no one noticed they, they probably thought that was a mighty fine tent nobody noticed yeah, we had yeah we had different little ratchet cords and all sorts. Of, a neighbor, you know, we didn't have the, we didn't have any stakes, so a neighbor went home and like welded some rebar stakes for us and dropped them off. And um, that's very Vermont. So that was clutch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because we had like ten stakes and like you know, like these small little aluminum nails, yeah. and like when you were trying to wrench down a twenty by twenty tent, like it just bent these nails. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So Gretchen's brother is coming to the event this year, and he's an expert in the tent. So. Was this uh, the efficient in your wedding? He was, yeah. Oliver oh Kaya. Gosh. Yeah. yeah what he's a, speaker. a very charismatic gentleman. Yeah. He, he was, was hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. He's and a funny dude. Um, yeah. Gretchen's one of one of five. Yeah. So he's her, I guess, second youngest brother. Big fan. Big fan. Um, yeah. Well, it's currently early mid July. Um, I think you're slated to go back to Europe in a handful of weeks. Um, how are you going to give this up? It's a good good pace of life here. How are you going to bring a piece of Vermont back with you to to Nice, to Europe, to the drudgery I, of professional bike racing? I mean that in the, the highest sense of drudgery. Yeah, I guess that's something that you were really good at throughout your career was staying occupied. Yeah. Of with Whether it's whatever it is, just... You know, because there's so much downtime in cycling, and there's so much, I guess, required downtime of like recovery. And like you, mm-hmm. if you're seen doing other activities, you know, teammates and directors, and 
there's a lot of judgment towards like what are you doing you know like you can't you can't go for a hike you can't you know do something that's strenuous when you're when you're racing um and that's one thing that's been nice being here is i'm very occupied when i'm not racing i mean i don't you were in Girona, which you know there's a lot of other cyclists around there and you develop these relationships with these people that they're your friends but it i don't i mean you wouldn't is there anyone you still talk to who you were friends with in Girona when you lived there? And so you develop these relationships that are almost very superficial and like you're friends because you're stuck in this place because you're like, Oh cool. We both speak English. Let's be friends and yeah. hang out. And then yeah. you like, you retire or you move you know, back to the U S and it's like, Oh yeah, I don't speak to that guy. <laughs> like we just, you know, we are, we are friends because we are almost like for, forced to be friends. Um, so it's nice to actually be somewhere where I'm like, building long-term relationships um so continuing to do that and yeah going back to europe which is you know i'm fortunate to live in in nice which is an, an incredible place to ride and to live um you know i do have some good friends there that you know came to the wedding so it'll be it'll be nice to go back and um yeah I mean, it's it's been a very fortunate ride to this point just racing a bike and traveling the world and yeah, someone the other day mentioned somewhere in, I forget, somewhere in Europe. And I was like, oh, yeah, I've been there. I'm like, it's such an obscure place that we, there's obscure places we go to to race a bike. You're going to Iceland in a couple of weeks to race a bike? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, who would have ever, I mean, as a kid, you never would have, like, pointed at a map and said, I want to go to Iceland. Yeah. But you're going to Iceland. So it's pretty incredible the places we get to go because of the bicycle. Yeah, the opportunities are incredible and and from there the opportunity to explore it or embrace it or be part of it is so few and far between as a professional bike racer so i think it it comes down to your perspective and you know are you willing to uh you know go out for a walk even though it's frowned upon after the meal to go out and walk around this you know, amazing city that, that the team hotel is in but just take in some aspect of it which i mean that was very hard on liquid gas don't yeah. stand when you can sit don't sit when you can lay down don't go for a walk after dinner where you can lay in bed and stare yeah. at the ceiling. <laughs> um, it's, it's that perspective. And, and I think you've, you've got it in spades. Um, and maybe this time off has, has allowed that to expand a little bit more. Who knows? Um, what else is shaking? Anything else? You want to go home to your wife? You want to go crush some creamies? Yeah, it's five o'clock. There is, yeah, we will pass by hoagies on the way home. Um, but I mean, eating an ice cream by yourself—it's kind of like watching a comedy by yourself. It's not as yeah. funny. It's like you, like you laugh. Oh, that's really funny. You look around; no one else is laughing. That's my barometer of yeah. of watching comedy. Yeah. And knowing that it's freaking hysterical. Like if you watch, oh man, what's the best you start example? crying by yourself laughing. Yeah. You know awesome powers, great example. Uh, 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 yeah, you're watching something by yourself and you're laughing out loud and you're like, oh man, no one else is watching this with yeah, me. But, but it's still funny. I'm with you. Yeah. Ice cream does not have the same. Yeah, you gotta enjoy if you're enjoying it with someone. Or I mean, I guess you could. I could probably stop by Hoagies right now. There'd be some kids out there having ice cream, and you could you could chat with them. Perfect. And, you got your you got um, your ice cream community right there. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a community, and yeah. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure hanging out with you today. Thank you very much for coming out. Thank you for uh, hosting one kick-ass wedding. Um, wish you the best for the rest of the season, and let's hang out and eat some well-fleet oysters. Thank you, Ted. <laughs>